From the Church Pension Group, this is Choose Well. Hi, my name is Krishna Dalakia, and this is Choose Well, the podcast that focuses on well-being, from maintaining physical and psychological health to being financially secure. Today we are focusing on the topic that has dominated much of our thinking for 2020, the global pandemic and its impact on our everyday health. In particular, we are focusing on caution fatigue, what it is and how it has affected us in unexpected ways. CPG podcast production lead, Manira Jones, has experienced it personally. So during the pandemic, I found myself waking up in the middle of the night in a complete panic. My mind is racing and I'm just desperately trying to recall if I put hand sanitizer on my hands after a trip to the grocery store earlier that day or a couple days before. And of course, this is like two in the morning, so I definitely don't have my wits about me. My heart is racing and I'm probably looking like a crazy woman. But in those moments, it's almost as if I'm playing you know, Russian roulette with my life. And my win or my loss all stems on my ability to recall if I had cleaned my hands. It's exhausting, but it's happened more than a handful of times. And, you know, what is this? We asked that question to the Reverend Barbara Kempf, Associate for Intergenerational Ministry for St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Indianapolis. Before her ordination, Barb worked for 24 years in healthcare and law, serving as an administrative law judge, a public health policy advisor, a critical care nurse, and a parish nurse. Barb, thank you for being here. Thanks, Krishna. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I hear so much of myself in this story. Um, I often wake up in the middle of the night worrying about whether I used hand sanitizer or um, I did something to protect myself during this this really uncertain, fearful time. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel this way. So I was just wondering, is there a, a term we can label how we're all feeling right now? Well, I think we're certainly hearing a lot of um, emotions, including some anxiety, uh, some confusion, and a lot of uncertainty. But one of the um, things that has helped me put some context on this is a notion or this concept of caution fatigue. The first time that I came across the concept of caution fatigue was when I read an article early in the pandemic that was authored by Jacqueline Gollin, who's a professor and researcher at Northwestern University. Since she coined the, fa- the phrase caution fatigue, which really gave me a framework to help evaluate some of my own reactions, not, which are not unlike yours. It's a concept, caution fatigue is a concept really where she reminds us, the researcher reminds us that early on in the pandemic, Many of us were motivated and energized to take the safety precautions that we needed to do to comply with all the new safety measures such as vigorous hand washing and sanitizing and social distancing. But we're creatures of habit and because we are, each of these new behaviors requires some additional brain work. Uh, They can be exhausting to do to make these new behaviors normative. And as the months have passed, it's easy to let our guard down, either intentionally because we've lost motivation 
or sometimes just because we've lost the energy for the compliance. It's not that we don't want to be compliant, it's just we have trouble sometimes remembering whether or not we have, and then with that comes the associated anxiety that we hear. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so interesting that you say that because for me, when I hear the term caution fatigue, I'm able to label this this really um, intense feeling that I've had for a long time that I wasn't able to label. And it's very true. Yes, it is caution fatigue. And um, and when I hear that and I'm able, able to label that emotion and feeling, it just kind of leads a little bit of relief. Sounds like uh, a lot of our behaviors have shifted and have had to shift during the pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the behaviors that you've noticed uh, have shifted within people during the pandemic? Sure. You know, I cannot think of a single person whose life has not been impacted in significant ways by this pandemic. So many of our avenues for leisure and joy and stress relief are have been limited or just simply not available. You know, depending upon the area of the country we live in and the time of year it is, public green spaces, swimming pools, playgrounds may be closed. Uh, Other avenues for leisure such as movie theaters or music venues, sporting events. The ability to worship together, to pray and to sing has been limited or unavailable to people in many parts of our country. So that's not to say that people aren't adapting. Uh, I don't want to sound without hope. I think we've seen a lot of people find new ways to enjoy new hobbies or to read more or to become a learner of a new thing. But I do think there is a sense of loss and a sense that life is just not normal as we've known it in the past. And again, the need to make all these different decisions uh, about our safety really does take Uh, a toll on our energy level. And again, as you say, for me at least, thinking about and doing my cost-benefit analysis about what's important in my life to do to keep that balance uh, helps me. I think that so much of what you just said about how people used to worship and, and the activities people used to engage in before the pandemic, um, in a sense, is so related to community and community-driven um, bonding and activities. So I'm wondering, what are some of the impacts of social isolation during this time and social distancing? Oh, I think, again, that there's not a single person that hasn't been impacted uh, and felt some of the negative impacts of social isolation. We may understand that it's what we need to do to stay safe and to to help to keep our neighbors safe, but it's often not easy. It's one thing if we choose to be alone or we choose to spend time in solitude. It's another factor or another matter when we really have to do it um, for other reasons and evaluate the safety of ourselves and our neighbors. We have seen in our country, I believe, the negative impact of loneliness which again is much more the subjective feeling, the the level of a person's satisfaction with their sense of connectedness or their perceived isolation. That's not a new problem in our country or or in the world, really. Mm -hmm. But this is different, you know, from, from again, being alone or being, choosing solitude. Um, 
We all experience loneliness at some point in our lives. Different situations cause us to be lonely, to feel disconnected. It might be the death of a loved one. It might be the breakup of a relationship. It might be the loss of a community because we've had to move. But when it becomes chronic, um, this sense of loneliness or isolation, that's when it can really become particularly worrisome because of the negative impacts on our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. When I went, for example, last week to my physician for my annual checkup, she did the basic thing physically, and the time we spent together, she spoke to me about the importance of not becoming isolated and the negativity that that can have on my physical health and emotional and spiritual health. I'm a person who can still get out physically. Uh, I still have connections. I don't live alone. But it was that important that she was, it was such a reminder to me that she said, staying connected is just a fundamental human need. And taking the energy and the time to keep those connections is essential at this time. And that, and that brings me to, the, to my next question. You had mentioned you went to see your doctor, and, and I think that a lot of people right now are, um, are weighing whether it is necessary for them to leave their house and, and, make, and, and go to see their doctor or, or, or make other appointments that they, you, that they may have been able to do without fear pre-pandemic. Have you observed anything in how people are taking care of their health during this time? Yes, at least anecdotally in in my work in ministry and even uh, with conversation with friends and family, I think people are having to evaluate to consciously do almost a cost-benefit analysis every time we have to make a decision to go somewhere including things related to um, preventive health care and so forth. And that's part of what I believe factors into some of this caution fatigue. We're not used to having to do that level of cost-benefit analysis to do something so simple that we believe is important in our lives. I've been reading a lot of research and a lot of news on how sleep and strange dreams or issues with sleeping and, and having strange dreams have become so common during this time. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I think um, sleep and rest during the pandemic um, have certainly, for most people, not gotten better than pre-pandemic. And as you know from research and so forth, sleep has been an issue and rest in this country for some period of time. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to mention that sleep disturbances are not necessarily universal. There may be some people listening to this podcast who are sleeping just fine or even better in the past because they're able to set better boundaries. But difficulty sleeping or even resting Um, is very real for many of us, especially right now. There are a lot of factors at play uh, in in causing sleep disturbances, but I think two primary factors are this. One is that our sleep-wake cycle, for many of us, has been disrupted or changed. One thing that's happened to some people, uh, and I know it happened to me early on in the pandemic, is when I didn't have to physically be in the office at a particular time on particular days, um, I found myself either staying up later and getting up later 
or going to bed early and getting up much earlier than my normal routine. And it became really clear to me that one of the things I needed to do was to set a routine, to get up, get dressed, go outside, particularly in the morning, if at all possible, and get exposed to some natural light. And in the evening, pay attention to my circadian rhythms, to dim the light, and to sort of do the routine that allowed my brain to settle down. Another thing I think is happening with relation to sleep disturbances is just the stress and anxiety that we're feeling. I think many people are feeling unprecedented amounts of stress at this time. Fear about our safety, as we've talked about, or the safety of our loved ones or other people. Many people are experiencing financial stresses or worried about what their financial situation will be in the months to come. They may have lost a job or be worried about losing a job. Or they may have a high-risk job or live with a loved one who does. So, And also at the more macro level, so while those are individual stresses perhaps, at a more macro level, I think we have to remember that in addition to concerns about the economy in our country, our education system is under stress right now. It's an election year. Our country is struggling with some deep systemic issues about around racial injustice and questions of immigration and other questions that this country is really being called upon to consider and to reflect upon and to perhaps make changes. You add these collective anxieties and uncertainty on top of our own personal anxiety and uncertainty, and I don't think it's surprising at all if people are experiencing sleep disturbances at this time. You alluded to this um, this concept of loss. You know, um, it could be related to your job, it could be related to money, it could be related to routine, or it could be related to someone um, that you've lost that you love. How do, how what advice do you have to kind of um, honor? honor the things that we've lost and the people we have lost during this pandemic. It's very important to name it and not judge it. Loss is both personal and collective. Again, that's what I think we're experiencing, both personal loss and collective loss. I think as we, it's important not to judge it uh, in the sense that um, it's very real for us if we miss something that may seem relatively unimportant in the scheme of things. I miss going to the gym. Sometimes I think I just miss the option of going to the gym, but I miss <laughs> going to the gym. I miss how I felt afterwards. I miss started, starting my morning that way. I miss feeling connected to people there without any real, um, you know, I didn't really know them, but I would recognize them and that's sort of the simple hello. And it's important, I think, to be able to name that. If we can't name it, we really can't begin to deal with it. The other thing about loss and grief, I believe, is that we really have to, some of us have to learn how to grieve. We may not really know how to grieve or to understand the process of grieving, and there's a lot of good resources out there to help us. I was reminded recently when I just had this incredible sense of sort of unsettledness. It was just a vague sense of being unsettled, and I realized that it was probably some anticipatory grief. I was worried about something that was 
potentially could happen in the future. And I was on that continuum between anticipatory grief and really full-blown anxiety. And I was reminded of a parishioner a number of years ago who, after the death of his mother, said to me, she taught me many, many things, but she never taught me how to grieve. And I think that grief can be so confusing, and particularly in the pandemic, because the situation is open-ended and uncertain, and personal, we have both personal grief and loss, and collectively we have grief and loss um, as, as a larger society, really. Um, so really, I think one of the best strategies is to think about what we can do, uh, what we can control, how we can stay in the present, uh, how we can find someone that it's safe to talk to about our grief, uh, and also to do something like a something that helps us visualize where we are um, and to be able to keep things in in perspective. The difference between personal loss and grief and collective loss and grief, I never really thought about, you know, but the more I think about it, um, I, I realize that one of the reasons uh, I sometimes feel the way I feel is because of the collective loss that I, I may not be considering, but I'm definitely feeling. Right, right. And again, going back, um, we often feel like we can't control or or influence some of that collective loss. And again, thinking about in what ways, perhaps very small, we can both um, stay positive and move forward through our loss and trust that, you know, out of some of this, um, some of this loss, uh, ultimately we can be changed and, uh, and we can grow. We can grow mm-hmm. from it. What about the challenges uh, specific to people working in ministry? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that um, the need for care and ministry in the church, both by lay and ordained persons, has never been greater. You know, we still need to preach the gospel and a good dose of hope. We still need to pastor and pray and have a prophetic voice and presence in our community. But the ways in which we carry out our ministry has changed on a daily basis in profound ways. At least that's been my experience. Now, not everything about the changes are negative. People in ministry will have different perspectives about that. Generally, I would say that we've adapted well to the need for virtual worship and formation, although it's not been without its challenges. We're still finding ways to worship And we may be reaching people online who might never have stepped in the door of a church, and that's a positive. Pastoral care presents many challenges, at least in my experience. Staying connected, as we talked about the importance of connections and personal relationships as a basic human need, is challenging. Whether it's we have to find new ways to to do formation, to to have fellowship, uh, we need to continue to be creative, and and I've learned I cannot measure the worthiness of my efforts or the success of my efforts in measurements that I may have used in the past, and this can mm-hmm. be challenging sometimes. And again, so important as well to be able to honestly say what I've, the, what grief I feel around not being able to do aspects of my ministry 
that I loved doing in the past in the same way. And attending to death and dying has been hard. And it's not only hard for people in the church, but it's been really hard, at least in my experience, for those who have lost a loved one, who have not been able to be present at the death due to particular restrictions, who have not been able to celebrate their loved one's life in the way they've imagined, who have not been able to be surrounded by a community and feel that support in person as they may have imagined. I don't think this is any sort of a term that's in science, but I think of it as deferred grief. I think there's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of deferred grief for people um, who, who are in the church or who are not in the church because there's just no certainty about when they may be able to have some of the closure that we've typically had closer to a significant loss. You had mentioned um, the use or, or virtual worship. We are relying heavily on technology right now. Can you talk more about the pros and the cons of technology overuse during this time? You know, it's generally been assumed that technology saves time and energy, but the, from the studies that I've been reading, um, And as the use of technology continues to be studied, I think there's a body of research that suggests, in fact, technology does take a toll on human energy and can lead to fatigue. The good part of video conferencing is that people can stay in touch. You know, if we can't visit family or friends or gather in person or for worship or be outside with others, video conferencing can be a godsend. It requires a different kind of focus There are some things that I have found um, help with technology use, making sure you get up and stretch, making sure you're not eating your meal in front of your phone or your laptop, or you're not missing meal times because you are glued to your phone or your laptop. Do you have any other suggestions for ways to promote better technology use? I think one of the things that's really important, again, um, as you mentioned, you know, it's really about establishing boundaries and a routine. Depending upon uh, your living, our living situation, if there is a way to set aside a place within your home where it is a place for work rather than um, laptop and all our work in the middle of our dining room table, um, I think that's helpful so that We set some boundaries about going to work, remembering that it is okay. Most of us who worked in an office or outside of our homes who were not working remotely, it's important to remember that for many of us, we didn't sit at our desk for eight hours a day. We were doing a variety of things. And so it may be unrealistic to to sit in front of our screens eight hours a day. I do think, too, that even if you're in a home where you're, you have limited space and so forth, I have found that just as I would have locked the door to my office when I walk out, I close my laptop and I try to put it out of sight to a place where then I can then get it out the next morning or the next day, rather than to leave it on the dining room table and just scoot it down while we have a meal or that sort of thing. Kind of out of sight, out of mind has been a good way for me to, um, to set some boundaries. 
and also deciding whether it's okay to perhaps turn off your email or certain alerts on your phone or your tablet, whatever devices you're using. So much of what you said is easier said than done. It does take some time to make these changes. And um, the more we are consistent with creating boundaries in our lives, especially around work and technology, uh, the more they stick in our brain as well. So I think it takes about 30 to 60 days to create a new neural pathway in your brain. And you might, during that time, encounter some challenges, but the more you stick to it, the more you will most likely create a new behavior of, of being consistent with boundaries and turning off your technology when, when you need to. Absolutely. And I think to give ourselves um, plenty of grace in this process, yep. because we're also, um, you know, trying to develop those new pathways for all these safety procedures that we're mm-hmm. doing. Um, yep. I mean, we have a lot going on uh, with uh, trying to, to make certain things habitual and normative in our lives. Um, and so, again, for me, thinking about the caution fatigue is just, you know, what's happening here, and also to be um, gentle enough with myself when I have the relapse um, on my phone, uh, checking my email too late in the evening, um, when I get up from not sleeping, you know, all those things, you're absolutely right. A lot of new behaviors that we're needing to develop right now. I, I really love what you said, having compassion for yourself in times where you're not able to do it in a way that you feel is 100% correct. Right. Because failure is such a big part of success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and relapse is really any part of change. I mean, I think we're saying the same thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So in closing, uh, what are some practical suggestions you have for overcoming caution fatigue and improving overall wellness? I think, again, establishing routines, as we just talked, to help you develop the new neural pathways that we need for behavior so that they become patterns. Having an accountability partner, a friend, a colleague, um, someone who can help you with your cost-benefit analysis. I really want to go and do X but your head says that's really too risky. To have someone who's not going to shame you, but will really walk through and you can process that with. Ultimately, you know, certainly when you need to, make sure that we ask for help, professional help, and use your medical trusts and your employee assistance program if you have access to Mm. those benefits. Don't try to do this alone. I believe that really as we develop those neuropathways, that the way to not get caught up or to make poor decisions because of caution fatigue is, for me, I've had to really reflect on what is my deepest core value that's going to motivate me in the long term to take the measures that I need to do to make sure that I wear a mask appropriately when I need to wear one, to make sure that I take time to wash my hands as they need to be washed frequently and vigorously, and to maintain social distance. And so deciding for ourselves, what is that core value that is important? Um, For me, I want to stay curious and caring and compassionate about this world that God has created and the people in it. And if that's true, then I have to act and treat myself in ways that allow me to have the energy and the care to be able to do that. I have to honor myself so I can participate in ministry in the community and beyond. 
As a person of faith, that's what's going to keep me motivated and energized, and it may be something very different for another person. But checking about what is the core value that helps you be compliant. I think also that, you know, we have to just be really honest about we, all we can be asked to do is make the faith, most faithful and responsible decision in the moment with the information we have. That helps me to alleviate some anxiety when I start second-guessing decisions that I've made or things that I've overlooked. Did I make the most faithful decision I could make with the information that I had at the time? And then there's also a lot of practical steps. I mean, the strategies that helped us to maintain our physical and psychological and spiritual well-being before the pandemic still apply. It's an uncertain future in terms of how long we'll be at this. And so again, simple, simple strategies for us, each of us, grace and compassion when we mess up, and also just some simple messages that we can stay with that can call us back when we really feel as if we may have succumbed to some of that caution fatigue and are not making wise decisions in the moment. One of um, my favorite meditations that I've been doing during this time is loving kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's a very forgiving meditation, especially like um, when we are waking up in the middle of the night questioning whether we did something right or not. This is a really good time to use it. And they, it, it goes through four affirmations. And the affirmations are, may I be safe? May I be peaceful? May I be kind to myself? And may I accept myself the way I am? Or may mm -hmm. I see things the way they are? And I find that you know, when I repeat those affirmations, maybe like five to 10 times and slow down my breathing, it does help calm the nervous system. Absolutely. That's a wonderful meditation hmm. and a wonderful practice. Well, I certainly have learned so much from talking with you today, Barb. Um, and if I were to label the feeling I'm feeling right now, it's a feeling of relief to know that I'm not the only one feeling this way. And uh, I want to uh, just let our audience know that if you are looking for more support or more resources, please do visit cpg.org um, where we do have more wellness resources in the Learning Center and e-learning library. And like Barb had mentioned earlier, be sure to use your medical trust benefits right now, especially the Cigna Employee Assistance Program um, that can help with behavioral health support. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Theme music for our podcast is by Fran McKendry. And please join us again for Choose Well. So, Manira, do you feel any better after listening to Barb? I do. I, I really do. There's a name for it. And it, it feels good to know that I'm not alone in experiencing this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So the next time you wake up at two in the morning, maybe you'll have a term to label what you're feeling, huh? Not now, caution fatigue. Not now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're, not you're, today. Not today. I'm going back to sleep, getting my Z's. <laughs> this material is not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. CPG does not provide any healthcare services and therefore cannot guarantee any results or outcomes. Always seek the advice of a healthcare professional with any questions about your personal healthcare, including diet and exercise. You've been listening to Choose Well from the Church Pension Group.